take your Bibles and turn with me. Can you hear me? All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 28. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 28. Before we return to regular programming, I want us to take the opportunity here at the first of the year and have something of a reset tendency as individuals and even as congregations is to suffer mission drift. Mission drift is when bit by bit, over the course of time, you lose focus. Lesser things begin to grab at your attention. You begin to fix on those lesser things and the next thing you know you look up and you're far afield from what you set out to be and to do at the outset. So we're going to go to a passage that I trust will be familiar to many of you in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and talk over the business of making disciples. What is a disciple or who is a disciple? How do we make disciples and who can make disciples? All of these questions and more are answered in our passage. Jesus provides us in these few verses with something of a strategy for making disciples. We'll discuss that at length in our time together this morning. And in the process of doing so, defines for us the terms of being a disciple, while at the same time, Matthew offers us a word of encouragement with regards to our ability, even in our faults and failures, to be participants in this great task of making disciples of all nations. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number 16. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read together the word of God. <clears throat> the Bible says here in verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. Matthew sets the scene for us beginning in verse number 16, noting that the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Although the 11 are highlighted here in verse number 16, the strong implication seems to be that there were many more disciples in that gathering at this undisclosed location in the mountains of Galilee. In fact, there is some degree of debate as to whether or not this is the meeting the Apostle Paul has in view in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that Jesus at one time appeared to more than 500 of his disciples in his resurrected state. The 11 are first and foremost here, figureheads of the church, representatives of the church at large, which will come to develop in the days after, but there may have been many more disciples in this gathering. The Bible says in verse 17 that when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. The broad group, the large group, the group as a unit worshiped, but there is within that group of worshipers, a subgroup described here as doubters. You might wonder, I have wondered why Matthew would offer this observation on the group that there were those who doubted. It's kind of an embarrassing observation to make. 
You could argue it doesn't serve the church well in the centuries after the resurrection of Jesus. We're trying to persuade people as to the truth of the resurrection. And here's this observation. In the presence of the resurrected Jesus, there are some who doubt. It's a reminder to us of the brutal honesty of the scripture and the shortcomings of his disciples. There are some there who doubt. Verse 18 says that Jesus came near and said to them, this is the kind of thing that we would typically read over quite quickly without giving much thought or consideration to, but there seems to be a pastoral move that Jesus makes in the beginning of verse 18. In light of the presence of those doubters, Jesus came near, he draws near. This is more than Jesus merely coming close in order to be clearly heard by those in the assembly. This is a move that's designed to allay the fears and the doubts of those in the assembly. Remember in the Gospel of John, when Thomas expressed his doubt as to the resurrection of Jesus, he would state confidently, except I can see and touch the scars in his hands and his side, I cannot and will not believe this resurrection business. Jesus draws near to Thomas. And Thomas is able to press into the scars in the hands and the side of his Savior. And the confession that follows is, my Lord and my God. In order to strengthen the faith of those gathered and to cast aside their fears, Jesus draws near, evidencing the reality of his resurrection before issuing forth the great commission that follows in the verses after. Jesus will say there, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This, this is the directive for the church. This is what Jesus has called us to do. This is what Jesus has called us to be about, the making of disciples. A few years ago now, one of the major Christian research firms, Lifeway or Ligonier, or one of those groups that assesses the health of the church on the basis of convictions and activities, released a survey that said that a majority of American Christians were unfamiliar with the Great Commission. Not just not participating in the Great Commission, but unfamiliar with the Great Commission. For that reason, we visit this passage annually and we make reference to this text and this teaching on a regular basis because I'm determined that here at Longview Point and within our network of sister churches, we will know, we will celebrate, and we will do, God willing, the work to which God has called us in this great commission. This is such a primary passage that each gospel gives varying degrees of emphasis to this particular message, at least each gospel writer. Luke sets this message forth in Acts chapter 1, where we're called to go and be witnesses to the truth of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And what follows both in the book of Acts as well as the letters that follow after in the New Testament is a real-time telling of the events of Great Commission expansion. This is deadly serious business. You can't be a church apart from the performance of the Great Commission. This is the work to which God has called us. 
This is the work to which, as individuals, we should orient our life around, endeavoring to be faithful and fruitful participants in this great commission work. If you've heard this passage preached before, you've, you've likely heard some reference to the grammar and the syntax of the Great Commission. Specifically the fact that make disciples is the main verb in our passage. The two words make disciples comes from a single main verb in the Greek text. Now in our English renderings of these verses, there are various forms that appear to have verb or action force, but those are in the original text participle forms which is a way of communicating that this main verb, make disciples, is the master verb in the passage, and every other partial verb form or participle in the text is subject or subordinate to that main verb. In other words, to go and to baptize and to teach are subordinate to the overarching goal, the overarching command that we would make disciples. Often in our preaching of this passage, it feels as though, it seems as though the force of the passage is that we would go. But we only go in service to the overarching command that we would make disciples. You might argue in the mouths of some, it feels as though, it sounds as though baptizing is the main focus, but we only baptize in service to the overarching call of the passage to make disciples. Teaching is central. I'm a teacher. I'm a preacher. I believe in the primacy of preaching in the local church gathering, but we only teach in service to the overarching goal of making disciples of all nations. I, I have observed, found anecdotally and in terms of survey work, empirical evidence that if you ask most pastors and assuredly most church members, how do you make disciples or how does your church make disciples, you will usually get one of two answers. You'll either get preach on Sunday morning and have Sunday school class, which is not bad. I believe in the power of the pulpit, but this is the fountainhead from which all other groups and discipleship ministries should be flowing. I would argue that we've been preaching from the pulpit and having Sunday school classes for more than a hundred years, and we are consistently losing ground. The work of discipleship should be happening outside of our hour or two gatherings on Sunday morning. I, my bro I have brothers who will chastise me for this, but if your understanding of the method of making disciples is to get up and preach on Sunday morning and then send your people to a Sunday school class, you have a deficient model of making disciples. In a purely practical way, apart from the teaching of the scripture, it just flat doesn't work. Not to mention the fact that it doesn't accord with what the Bible has called us to do or to be about. That's one answer, and you'll get that answer a lot. The second answer is, I just don't know. And I, I think that to be a dreadful answer. An, an answer that is in itself an indictment on the church and our ministries. And so I hope in the time that we have together this morning to clarify how it is that we make disciples. Just the language of disciple is a little enigmatic. 
it's not the kind of terminology that's used customarily in our culture. The other night I was listening to a, a, a ball game broadcast. It was a football game broadcast, and the, the word disciple was used. And automatically I just assume that the broadcaster is probably a Christian or at least has been influenced by Christian teaching because that's just not a word that you use outside of Christian culture. So what in the world do we mean when we say disciple? Who are disciples? Well, Jesus helps us with this even in the Great Commission as it's provided in verses 18 and following. Look to verse 18. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. For the sake of answering the question of who is a disciple or what is a disciple, let's note here at this juncture in the text that a disciple is one who has come under the authority of Jesus Christ. A disciple is one who submitted to the lordship of Jesus in all of their life. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and on earth. In our Wednesday night Bible study, I'm, I'm teaching through the Baptist faith and message and teaching this past Wednesday night on the doctrine of God. I found myself laboring through a distinction between the omnipotence of God and the sovereignty of God. When we say omnipotence, we mean that he has all power but we mean something subtly different when we talk about the sovereignty of God. We mean that he is actively orchestrating every event unfolding in the creation he has mastered. He's Lord over all. Someone recently drew an illustration from the game of basketball. To talk about the power and the ability of God perhaps has some degree of analogy in an athlete's power, ability physical strength to advance the ball up the court, to jump, to shoot, to guard his opponent. He has physical power or ability. But the orchestration of the game itself, the implementation and observation of the rules is given to the official that holds the whistle. When Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, what he's saying is not only do I have the power, but I hold the whistle. He has the ability to see through his plan and at the same time is actively orchestrating the events of our life. There are no limitations with regards to the power or the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. We rest well at night in light of this observation. I find the language of accepting the lordship of Jesus to be terribly unhelpful with regards to this matter. Jesus does not need your acceptance to be Lord. He is Lord whether you or I like it or not. The invitation of the gospel is that becoming disciples, we submit ourselves in every area of our life to his absolute lordship. Sometimes in life we can struggle with great decisions, but on some way, perhaps a forceful way of stating what is observed in verse 18 is to note that when we come to faith in Jesus, we surrender our decision-making power to the Lord Jesus Christ. He now calls the shots. So a disciple is one who has come under the Lordship of Jesus. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
I want you to understand this morning that this is not a secondary or tertiary matter. This is the primary focus of the church. The business of our Savior is to seek and to save that which was lost. The business of his bride, the church, is to go and make disciples of all nations. This is primary, not something that we do, but at the heart of who we are as followers of Christ. To be a disciple is to come under the authority or the lordship of Jesus and to gladly join ourselves with the mission of our Savior, going to make disciples of all nations. Verse 19 continues on describing our being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As you go and you make disciples, you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is our means of identifying with Jesus. In the minds of many, baptism is something of a religious ritual, a point of access into the life of the church. And there is an element of truth in that way of regarding baptism. But more than anything else, this is our means of identifying with Christ. Baptists historically, Baptists specifically in history, have regarded baptism as something of a countercultural movement. It's a Christian act of civil disobedience. We are expressing our undivided allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ over all else. I was recently with a small team from our church in South Asia. And it's pretty common to find in congregations there that there are believers who have not been baptized. And it's not that they've not been baptized because they're afraid of water or they're timid of getting up in front of a bunch of people or it hasn't been baptism Sunday in their local church. They've yet to be baptized because they realize the seriousness of that action, that it represents a complete break with their former way of life and a new identification with Jesus and his bride, the church. They believed, but they're not quite certain as to whether or not they're all the way in. Baptism is a first and public way of our identifying with Jesus. But I would suggest here it can operate as a catch-all for a variety of ways that you and I identify with Christ. First of all, we identify with Jesus in faith. When we come to Christ in faith, we're acknowledging that we believe the message of the gospel that Jesus is God's only begotten son, that he lived without sin, that he bled and died on the cross as our substitute, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. We identify with Jesus by faith. In fact, the Bible speaks of our being joined with Jesus by faith, having affirmed the historical facts of the message of the gospel. We give expression to this identification with Jesus in baptism. And from that point forward, we continue identifying with Jesus in word and in deed. Our behavior conforms to the word and the will of God for our life so that in observation of us, the world might take note that we have been with Jesus. So we might say that a disciple is one who's come under the lordship of Jesus, one who's joined in the mission of the Savior, and one who has identified with Christ in baptism. Notice next that the passage says in verse 20, we are to teach them to observe everything Jesus has commanded. 
teaching and instructing them to observe all that has been commanded. This speaks of the presence of repentance, ongoing repentance and spiritual growth in our life. We're growing in grace and understanding as we understand and we learn the Bible. Teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. This is a description of sanctification and how we grow in grace. A part of coming under the lordship of Jesus is to come under the authority of his word. And we labor and we strain and we strive to do what his word instructs us to do. Some of you can remember those early days of coming to faith in Jesus, where every page you turned in God's word was a new discovery. And every day you endeavored to do what that verse said to do was a new and exciting journey in laboring to know him and to honor his command on your life. I tell the story and people think that I'm just clowning around, that it's a preacher story, but, but this is, is real life. In those early days, when I came to faith in Jesus, I, didn't, I couldn't have found the book of Genesis with both hands and a flashlight. I didn't know anything. All that I knew you can capture in a few short phrases. I was bad. God was good. I was bound for hell. But, he but heaven is what I wanted and only Jesus could change my destiny. That's about the sum total of what I knew. And I would just read the Bible and discover something new, some command from God's word. And the excitement of those hours and days and weeks that followed in laboring to honor that particular command is just unmatched. And I got in the Bible to Leviticus chapter 11, which is where the food laws for Israel are listed out. I came home and announced to my godly grandmother who could make a pan of biscuits before you could wash your hands for dinner that there would be no more pork chops and bacon in this house. <laughs> Not until I came to Acts chapter 10 and that vision that Peter receives where those animals come down in a dream did I find the liberty to partake ever again. It was just fun to watch the fruit sowing obedience to the word and watching God honor that with a harvest of fruitfulness. I, I just can't, it's just exciting. And it got to a place where it was, you know, I may not be as enthusiastic about doing what this passage says, but what will God do if I do what he tells me to do? This is a part of what it means to be a disciple, to live in a position of repentance and growth and grace and sanctification. Jesus concludes the Great Commission with these words, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. For the purpose of filling out our explanation of what a disciple looks like or who is a disciple those elements of discipleship that ought to be placed in our life let let's let's say that jesus is describing here the concept of abiding john chapter 15 jesus said i am the vine and you are the branches and the answer to fruitfulness and faithfulness is that you abide in me even as i abide in you he says something that's just absolutely audacious in the previous chapter of John's gospel. He says, it's better for you if I go away, because if I go away, I'll send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will guide you in all things. Jesus says it's better for us if we have his spirit abiding in our hearts than if he were physically standing at our side. You ever read the Gospels and thought, that Peter is an idiot. If I had Jesus at my side, I would have done so much better than he did. Jesus says it's better. It's better for us 
with the abiding presence of his Holy Spirit, the promise of the new covenant by which we are saved, than if Jesus were physically present in our midst. The secret to faithfulness and fruitfulness is to abide in Christ even as he abides in us. He has promised, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So for the purposes of our definition this morning, a disciple is one who has come under the lordship of Jesus, one who is joined in the mission of our Savior, one who identifies with Jesus in baptism, one who lives a life of repentance and growth in grace, and one who abides with Jesus on an ongoing basis. What about the question of how we make disciples? How do you do it? Is it possible that Jesus sets forth a strategy for disciple-making in our passage? Now, I want us to be careful that we don't reduce the whole process of disciple-making to strategy. We're assuming here that you understand that there are parts of the making of a disciple that are beyond our capacity. Only God can touch and turn the human heart. And when he does, it creates radical change in a person's life. One of the best prayer partners I've ever had in life and in ministry had an open heart surgery several years ago now. He was concerned for the surgery, not because he feared the surgery itself, not because he was afraid of death. In fact, he was quite ready to meet Jesus and continues to be quite ready to meet Jesus. But he had observed that for others who had open heart surgery, it created personality change in them after that. Sweet soft-hearted brother. You couldn't ask him to pray publicly. He just wept. And he, he, didn't want, he didn't want anything to change. He didn't want to experience that kind of personality transformation that often comes with an open heart surgery. It's kind of a mystery as to why it happens the way it happens. There's some hormonal answers as to why it unfolds the way it does. But I find it fascinating that even in the natural realm, when you manipulate a man's heart, it changes every part of his person. Spiritually speaking, when God puts his hands on the human heart, when God manipulates the human heart, it will change every aspect of your life. There are parts of discipleship that are beyond our pay grade, that are beyond our power, beyond our ability. Only God can touch and, touch and turn a human heart in this way. But God has ordained the means whereby the touching and turning of human hearts by divine hands would unfold. And they're described for us in the passage before us. We've already mentioned the main verb, make disciples. And those subordinate verb forms, those partial verbs, go and baptize and teach. Might there be something of a strategic approach to making disciples in the way Jesus has framed this charge on our life. He says first to go. In the process of making disciples, you must go. Which is to say, there must be the active pursuit of lost people in your life personally. Within your circle of influence, there are those who don't have a relationship with Jesus. They represent for you open fields into which you are to enter as a farmer enters a field looking for opportunities to spread the seed of the gospel abundantly in that field. You're looking for people and you're looking for places. As you go, you don't just go without purpose or go without direction. There's an intentionality on your part to go to people and to places who stand in desperate need of the message of the gospel. 
I made a somewhat embarrassing confession to our staff on Monday talking through some of these issues that in this new year, in an effort to compile a new list of lost people for whom to pray, open fields, if you will, to enter into, I have really struggled to identify people in my immediate circle of influence who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. Some might regard that as a good thing. We know the cultural proverb, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. That has a biblical foundation, a little leaven leavens the whole bunch. But dear brothers and sisters, if you're going to be the salt of the earth, you're going to have to press into the dying and decaying world about you to have any effect whatsoever. And if you're going to be the light of the world as Jesus has called us to be, you're going to have to make your way to dark places that the light of the gospel might be cast abroad. If your observation is like mine at the beginning of this new year, that there just aren't a lot of lost people within your circle of influence, then you need to broaden your circle of influence. You need to expand your friend group and find yourself in the company of those who stand desperately in need of the message of the gospel for the salvation of their soul. You should go and you should go deliberately and you should go strategically advancing the message of the gospel even as you go. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Jesus says, baptize in the making of disciples. If we could take a broad approach to the concept of baptism, here's where we get to the matter of conversion. There must be at some point in leveraging our relationships and sowing the seed of the gospel and functioning as salt and light in a dark and perverse generation, there must come a point of inviting the lost to entrust their soul to Jesus. As recently finished as a field mentor for a doctor of ministry project that was focused on relational evangelism. The language of relational evangelism may seem a new concept to you. It's been around for several years now. The idea is we befriend and endear ourselves to the lost around us in order that those relationships might be leveraged for gospel advancement. The unfortunate reality is that often those relationships become the end in itself rather than a means to an end of sharing the gospel. What my student found over time was what I hoped he would find is that there must come a time when there is a pointed invitation to accept and believe the truthfulness of the gospel for the salvation of their soul. Now, I'm not suggesting that we use people in relationships. I'm simply suggesting that you honor the command of Jesus to love your neighbor as yourself, even your lost neighbor as yourself. And you further follow the command of Jesus that in every part of your life, you are actively, intentionally laboring with great zeal to make disciples of those that you encounter. There must come a point and place in time where a person is invited to entrust their soul to Jesus. Your lost friends don't just need positive influences. Your lost friends and family don't just need Christian family. They don't need a connection so they have a preacher to preach their funeral or a place to send their kids to VBS. Your lost friends are lost 
and separated from God, and the only way they'll ever be reconciled in their unrighteousness to a truly righteous God is by faith in Jesus Christ. And the means by which God intends to get the message of the gospel into the hearts and minds of those lost friends and family is you. As a bearer of the truth of the gospel, we must go and we must baptize, inviting that they would identify with Jesus in faith, in baptism, in word, and in deed. Jesus says to go make disciples, you must go, you must baptize, and you must teach. Walking with people as they learn to follow Jesus is a critical part of this discipleship strategy that Jesus sets forth in our passage. The old focus on the family parenting stuff used to really emphasize this idea that more is caught than is taught. What they meant by that and what they continue to mean by that is that your children are listening far more carefully to what they observe you doing than what you say with your mouth. I can look back in my Christian experience from the early days especially and note that I learned far more from the modeling, from the example of my home church pastor than I ever learned from the sermons that he preached from the pulpit. There's something about this process of discipleship that requires proximity, that we walk with people. Dear brothers, dear sisters, that simply cannot happen as Jesus intends in a large group setting like this. Which is not to say there's no place for this. Obviously there is, I'm a believer in it. Here I am in the pulpit. I believe in the primacy of the pulpit and the gathering of the local church. But this is not all that God intended we would be. And dear brothers and sisters, if you're not availing yourself of the opportunity to be connected with a discipleship group within our body, if you don't have a group of people with whom you're gathering often in order to be encouraged in the faith and to grow in grace, you are short sailing yourself with regards to discipleship. Radical individualism that is so customary in American culture, is, it's, it's made its way into church culture. And I just want to say to you that Jesus never intended that we would go it alone, that you would get in your corner and grow in grace apart from the influence, the example, the encouragement, and the accountability that can only come with connecting yourself with a small group of believers laboring together to grow in grace. If you can't see your own need for growth and encouragement and discipleship within that small group context, for heaven's sake, see the need of others and connect for the benefit of someone else. Go and baptize and teach. In an effort to alleviate any likelihood that we'd ever be caught flat-footed with regards to disciple-making, your pastors have been meeting and talking over the last several months, this goes back more than a year, discussing how we can best simplify the ways we communicate about disciple-making. We have adopted, I say adopted because this language is not unique to us, three words that describe our emphasis on discipleship. We're using the terminology of head and heart and hands. I believe these are reflected in the Great Commission passage that we've just studied. Head has to do with what we know about our Savior, what we know about the Bible. This is an important part. This is what the pulpit ministry is about. This is what teaching ministries in our church are about. You need a certain measure of information. 
I believe in preaching, the power of preaching, how God has taken the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise and to bind the strong. There's something special, supernatural that happens in the preaching event. I believe in that with all of my heart. It is an encouragement to me week by week and day by day, service to service. I'm encouraged at the supernatural things that God does in the ordinary, through the ordinary means of preaching the word expositionally. I'm refreshed at that. We have to be careful that this is not the end of the road for us. And I want to suggest to you that the problem with the American church is not a lack of information, but an unwillingness to do what God has so clearly instructed us to do. In fact, I'm not sure that this is an experience unique to our culture. As far back as the book of James, James says the problem with you people is not that you don't know what to do, the problem is you won't do it. You are satisfied to be hearers of the word only. And then he exhorts them, be not hearers only, but doers of the word also. So there has to be more than teaching. Head has to do with the gathering of information, being instructed as to the commands of Christ. But there must be heart transformation that follows after. Your character should be changed by virtue of your relationship with Jesus. And you can be helped in that by observing the example of others within your small group, those who set out to mentor or disciple in your given scenario. We can be assisted, aided, and held accountable in a variety of different ways with regards to character transformation. Teach them to observe all that I've command. Teach them to obey all that I've command. We're looking that they be well indoctrinated with the truth of the gospel and that this begin to have bearing in their lives by virtue of character change and enhance. What we believe about Jesus ought to impact what we do, how we actively serve. Most specifically, we ought to be actively engaged in the work of making disciples, but there are a variety of other acts of service to which our Savior has called us to head heart and hands seems to us a sufficient way of very succinctly capturing the business of disciple making in each of our lives and we must focus on each of those areas in our efforts at making disciples you, you probably notice the low-hanging fruit here is teaching it's a little more difficult to create opportunities for accountability people don't like accountability people don't like to have things expected of them Ordinarily, but Jesus never promised us great comfort. If you've wondered why there's an accountability component in our small group ministry, this is why. And it's even more difficult than that to provide opportunities in short spurts for people to act upon the work to which God has called them. But we must labor toward this end to see that there's balance, that there's equity among these aspects of discipleship, that we are believing sound doctrine, that our lives are being transformed by the power of the gospel, and that we're pressing into the harvest with the good news of the gospel. This is how we make disciples. We go, we baptize, or we teach, or in our shorthand, we seek gospel transformation in the head, the heart, and the hands. There's a third question that sort of looms here in our conversation. Who can make disciples? The perception is that making disciples is for those who have a perfect walk with Jesus. Making disciples is for 400 level Christians. Or in some circles, making disciples is for those people we pay to make disciples, professional clergy. But nothing 
could be further from the truth. And I would note for you this morning that that misconception has done more to hamper and to hinder the advancement of the gospel than any misconception in the history of Christendom. Notice back in verse 17. The Bible says when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. You know, perhaps we could start even further back in verse number 16 and note that the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them to go. You know, the, 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 this is kind of the old sports deal. The, the first ability you need to be a disciple maker is availability. They showed up where Jesus instructed them to show up. But notice in verse 17, there's the broad group described as the worshipers. And then there is, as we mentioned, the subgroup described here as the doubters. And do you know that Jesus commissioned the whole group to go and preach the gospel? He didn't isolate the doubters. He didn't put them in a class in order to sort out their confusion. He draws near to allay their fears, to bolster their faith. But he commissions the whole batch and sends them out as makers of disciples. I'm almost reluctant to say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it because I think the benefits outweigh the risk. In my observation, it almost seems as though those with the most jacked up or inadequate relationships with Jesus are more effective in the harvest than those who feel themselves to have all of their ducks in a row. I don't know if it's proximity to lostness. I don't know how this works. But there is something to be said for the power of an imperfect walk with Jesus in making disciples of all nations. I can look back across my journey with Jesus. You know, at different times in your life, you're around different people, even different parts of your family, maybe different sides of your family. Before I was 15 years old, I really don't remember a lot of Christian influence being a part of my life at all. But there are a couple people who who sort of stand out. At, at my youngest, there, there was a woman. She was not a part of our immediate family. She was kind of a distant relative, relative by marriage, but we lived close enough that, that she was in a position to be an influence in my life. In fact, at 18 and 19, when I began to hear the gospel and believe, I believe the foundation for that was set by her and I believed at 18 and 19, before I believed the gospel for salvation, I believed that the Bible was God's holy word that bore some special power. And I credit that to her influence in my early life. She was an imperfect person. And as an adult, you begin to look back at these things, especially when you come to Jesus, you begin to look back at these people and wonder, what in the world is going on with this person who appeared to be a Christian. And there are all these things. She eventually lost her marriage. She eventually lost her family. In the last years of her life, her health declined precipitously because she made bad life decisions. But she was one of those signpost people in my early life pointing me to Jesus. There, there, was, there was a man in our family. I almost called his name earlier, but I, I fear who watches these services online, you know. I didn't know what it meant to be a Christian really, but I, I, I knew he went to church and I knew he didn't cuss and I knew people didn't cuss around him. I can remember being a young boy. I was probably seven or eight years old and we're standing in the driveway and a family friend pulled in and he was there and, and this family friend, it was a woman 
and she cussed. You know, there's adults are standing in a circle and being the nosy little boy that I was, I'm just outside trying to pick up all I can pick up. And I heard her when she said it and I thought, I don't know much, but this ain't good. You know, people seem to be afraid to do that in, in his presence. And I, I've, I've looked back and have even been a counselor to him in recent years. He has been out of the fellowship for several years, only recently beginning to attend again for past hurts that he experienced in a local church in their community. All, I mean, I just look back at these people with, with problems and issues that were signpost people pointing me to Jesus. Even some who invested in me early, who are great encouragements. I'm just telling you, God likes to strike a straight lick with a crooked stick. And your problems, your issues, your shortcomings are not an inhibiting factor in the advancement of the gospel. God is looking for our availability and our willingness to go in service to the kingdom. I'm not validating or giving license for foolishness in your life personally. I'm just telling you that if anyone out there is waiting on the perfect Christian to bring them the message of the gospel, they're going to be waiting until the kingdom comes. Where you are, warts and all, faults and failures, bear forth the good news of the gospel. That's the subgroup, the doubters. But I'm most impressed with the broad group, the worshipers. I've heard this principle a couple of times, one in a, in a sermon context, another in more of a motivational talk, this balloon principle. Maybe you've heard this being floated around, pun intended, as well. The balloon principle goes like this. There are two ways to keep a balloon in the air. One is you can just whack it. You just keep hitting the balloon and, and you can keep it in the air over time. That's the approach that most pulpit ministries take with regards to evangelism. And you all seem to like it. There's something about Southern culture that likes to be roughed up by the preacher. You say things like, you really stepped on my toes this morning, pastor, or you were, you were tough on us today, or he beat us up, or you'll, you may be walking into the service and say things like, get us good this morning, preacher. What is that all about? That's the approach we take. So we show up on Sunday morning and we just get whacked in the hopes that the balloon stays afloat until next Sunday morning when we can all come back together and get whacked again. <laughs> but there's a better approach to keeping the balloon in the air. It's to put something different on the inside. In the balloon illustration, it's helium. It keeps the balloon afloat for an indefinite period of time. But within the context of our conversation, it's the presence of God's Holy Spirit. They were worshipers. Brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you this morning is that the problem of the church is not that we have a shortage of evangelists. The problem is we have a shortage of worshipers. We've reduced worship to the idea of having a deeply emotional experience, being moved by the music in a Sunday morning service with very little bearing on the way we live our life between those Sundays when we return again to get whacked in the hopes of keeping ourselves afloat until the next Lord's Day. The far better approach is to set the eyes of faith on the beauty of our Savior Jesus and to pursue with great zeal the filling of His Holy Spirit, to stay afloat with gospel enthusiasm, 
because we have beheld the Savior and we acknowledge that He alone is worthy of all worship and praise. Because we have fallen in love with Jesus, we are smitten with what He's done for us. When there's as much enthusiasm for what God has done for us in human history, in the death and resurrection of His Son, and what God has done for us in the history of own li our own life, taking hold of our soul and saving us from sin, we'll speak as smoothly, as comfortably about Jesus as we speak of our favorite football teams, our favorite hobbies, our favorite interests, the latest television show that we've watched. When Jesus is our great treasure, we cannot but speak of that which we have seen and heard. This, this morning, let's just dismiss the concept of evangelism and discipleship for just a moment. And ask of ourselves, are we worshipers of Christ? When we get that right, everything else has a way of taking care of itself. And let's be so bold, so daring, as to begin to radically redefine our understanding of worship and reevaluate ourselves in light of this new definition. If to worship God has its culmination in the making of disciples, can we truly say of ourselves that we have rightly worshiped the only one worthy of all worship and all praise? If you know him, you'll treasure him. And when you treasure him, you'll worship. And when you worship, you'll find that this Sunday morning experience is just the prelude to a week that God has set before you, a week of opportunities to be of service to him in his kingdom. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the privilege of gathering together. Make us more than hearers of the word, but doers also. Lord, examine us by your Holy Spirit. Fill us to the brim, God, we pray. Make us worshipers in the truest sense. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.